could be fun being in church once in a while, isn't it? <laughs> I like coming here. I don't know about you guys. I gotta put my hair back down after Marianne sings that song. <laughs> when we're picking music for the worship team, this is not in my notes. I can prove it if you want, but when we're picking music, there's a lot of factors that go into it. We scour it theologically. We think about all kinds of different other factors, but sometimes you hear a song, you're like, I know who sings that one. <laughs> certain songs that seem written for certain people. So it's fun when that lines up. There's a lot of changes at faith. Um, many of them would not be a secret to most of you. Some of you are new to faith, so you don't know. Um, there's a, a lot of changes. And uh, I wanted to mention just an update on one of those changes. Um, you know, for a long time, or at least since the beginning of this year, there's been some concern with how is um, how's the church going to do being down a person because our senior pastor is retired? Uh, how are we going to do the workload thing? And, and how is all, all that going to change? And we said, we don't know. We'll figure that out. And uh, that's what we've been doing. And of course, with a lot of help from a lot of people, um, it's going to sound a little bit like pandering, but I, I just want to quickly mention as a drive-by that I appreciate the work of the elders. I, I don't know that these guys knew that they were getting second full-time jobs when we went into transition, but that is what it's become, I think, for them. And so uh, there's a lot going on there. But also, uh, we have various folks that minister in the midst at faith that are very, very effective, that we appreciate very much. And the work um, may go unnoticed by a lot, but not by all. And so... Um, one such individual, we've been pleased to welcome him on a very limited but part-time basis to our staff, and that's Mr. Jeff Cucci. I think he's in the room, mister. Would you please? No, stand up for a second, because I want everyone to appreciate the ponytail. So, so uh, Jeff, all right, that's enough, Jeff, sit down. Did you notice how he's just staying there? Just, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, Jeff has just been a great brother in the Lord and uh, a really close friend um, and uh, a man of many talents. Uh, actually, we got to know him the most, I think, because he and Chris Poulin primarily helped build our, our hub area and uh, his craftsmanship and skill is uh, the best I've seen per in person. And uh, so we got to know him that way, but also got to sense his heart and his, uh, his call to ministry, his true call to ministry. Um, he's not helping us out just because he's got nothing else to do. Um, and many of you have been benefited and blessed by his ministry. And so uh, we appreciate him. We are, we're getting the better end of the bargain. We are not paying him what he uh, deserves. So, uh, but he is new to us. So uh, Pastor Jeff, as I will probably now start referring to him as, um, will be helping us uh, primarily as a, a direct support to even Pastor Ben in the area of some uh, visitation and helping us uh, on occasion with some counseling and uh, and already doing a lot of those things before we even asked him to. So, uh, so we're looking forward to our relationship, our friendship and partnership going forward. So thanks Jeff for, for being willing to join this, <laughs> whatever all of this is. So, um, so let me switch gears. The, um, I believe that man, mankind, human beings, we have two, at least two, primary cravings in life. 
These are not cravings that are just the result of us being sinful, broken, dare I say, messed up people from Adam and Eve's first sin. But these are cravings that we've had that I believe the Lord created us even in perfection with. Because I see them demonstrated in Adam. And I think that those two primary needs, and there's some offshoots to this, and there's probably some other primary ones that you might come up with on your list, but I would say that they funnel into the need for acceptance and the need for purpose. We want to be accepted, we want to be received, and we want to be acknowledged. We see this, I think, as Adam walked with his God in the garden, we see as he went to the Lord, it would seem with a, with a, with a, a, um, uh, a missing element where he was like, how come there isn't one like me that I can love and be loved by? And you might say, well, maybe he was just being, you know, so unselfish because he didn't have any sin. He just wanted an object to love like his creator. And that's true. But you know, if you're a pet owner, if you have animals, you know, the love that you can receive and you're like, I don't know how to do without that. We're a little embarrassed when we lose our pets and stuff about how much it crushes us and breaks our heart and our spirit. Imagine Adam's pets, all of those that he had to name and to do all those kinds of things and to be able to understand that it's nice to receive some love too. And Adam had this, I think, craving in his heart for acceptance, an object to show love to, but also to receive love from, but also in purpose. God gave Adam a job, not as a punishment. Well, you guys really messed up. Now you have to go to work. He gave Adam a job because it was built within him to want to have something go well, something he could invest in, something that he could put his hands to. These were good things. Now, the problem with us is since we've had the fall, we've had that fracture between us and our God. Now that we have all been born with this, with this sin built within us, we will settle for a distortion of these two primary needs. So when it comes to acceptance, we will start to have conversations with our teenagers and we'll say, um, don't give in to peer pressure. This desire to be accepted by your friends, you know, I like to quote from Coneheads, um, the movie, uh, not the, sitcom, the uh, SNL skit, I don't remember that much, it was a little bit before my time, but the Coneheads movie, I really appreciate a lot of the logic in it. And the question is simply asked to the teenager, uh, Connie Conehead. Was it Connie? I can't remember. But anyway, teenager Conehead, when she said everyone's doing it because she had a decal, which was a decal, a tattoo on her cone. And the dad freaked out as dads do when their teens come home branded, you know. And he said, return to the hygienical chamber and remove the decal. Go to back to the bathroom and get rid of the wash on tattoo. And so, uh, and so she said, but daddy, everyone's doing it. And he said, logically, I want you dads to use this. This is now in your arsenal. If everyone were to jump in the petumious cauldron, would you jump also? It's genius. It's brilliant. It's so much less stale than where if everyone would jump off a bridge, would you jump too? Petumious cauldron. That's for free. We have conversations with our teenagers. Don't give in to peer pressure. I also have that conversation with them, but I try to also say, don't think that once you turn 20, that peer pressure uh, tendencies go away. That we're good as adults making it a, a big deal for our teenagers, that they're the only ones that struggle with this. And the truth is that that coming of age does heighten the the need for that or the perceived need for that. 
But you know what, adults, we we turn that into um, uh, we turn that into codependency. We turn that into people pleasing. We have all these other more adult terms for the same issue. We care about how people receive us. We care when we leave a room what they're saying after we've left the room sometimes. In the 70s and the 80s, we started coming up with this codependent term. It turned into all the psychology thing and needing the attention from others, needing somebody's respect, needing affection to be shown from us. Now it evolved into our need for self-esteem, the approval of our actions and just our overall being. This fear of this, this desire for acceptance in our sinful state turns into a fear of exposure. What if they find out I'm an imposter? What if the charade I'm playing up to out in the public gets exposed? Maybe I become indecisive because I'm just so afraid of what other people are going to think about the decision I make when I finally pull the trigger. And so it paralyzes us. Perhaps we're easily embarrassed or we've strung together a series of white lies so that the big one doesn't really catch up to us. We become jealous of other people, what they have, who they are. You know, it doesn't just, I'm talking, I know, to a, a, an, audience, the, an audience that might be thinking, um, well, you're, you're just talking about the needy people. I could care less what people think. Give me 100 acres in the woods, long driveway, and leave me alone. <laughs> Don't raise your hands if that's you, because I'm sure there's a healthy population in this room. I know where we live. Please understand that even though that might feel as though that you're above that need to impress or please other people, let me, th I'll throw out one test. We'll see if this would be true. I figured out a way this week because it was an illustration. So I was like, well, I got to make sure it counts. I figured out a way to hardwire your brain thoughts to our screen. And I'm going to play them in a second. So those of you that are happy with the hundred acres could care less what people think. I don't care what people think of me. We're going to stream all of your thoughts in the last 30 minutes and see if you stay in the room because we wouldn't. I mean, I know there's callous people, but most of us would be like, uh, no, no, now I care what people think. So don't misconstrue this with the fact that whether or not we need an acceptance from lots of people or just from a handful. The point is, is that we want our acceptance to come from places that are distorted it's not what God originally intended. But the gospel brings us to the place of true acceptance and true purpose. And that Bible has a lot to say about these pursuits. It has a lot to say about our, our, our born in need for acceptance. But the Bible calls it something else. The Bible's a little bit more direct. It's not going to come up with a cute phrase that we can all hide behind like codependency. The Bible kind of hits us right between the eyes. Where, the, where society says alcoholic, the Bible says drunkard. Where, the Bible, where, where, society says, where society says codependent, the Bible says fear of man or fear of people. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, it lays a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I want us to get on the same place this morning so that we can understand Paul's words to the Corinthian church so that we would at least accept on the very basic premise that we all have a tendency to think just a little too much about what people think of us. Maybe just a little. Some of that comes from a fear of being shamed by them, 
You think about, I won't get into detail, but think about everyone's like worst nightmare and how it usually involves not being fully dressed. <laughs> we, we're so afraid of being shamed in front of people. So it, it gets into the place that the psychologist would call our psyche. So it shows up in dreams and things like that. We have legitimate fears from other people who are harsh or abusive that we don't want to be physically harmed by them. So this isn't a list that I'm picking on as much as it is that we're talking about where this all comes from. I think the most common fear of man that we experience, and this would, this would point out the result of things like Facebook and, and Twitter and all the other social um, media outlets that require um, or that feed this desire to be liked, is the fear of man when it comes to being rejected. You might remember when we were going through the scriptures in 1 Samuel, uh, Pastor Bill had shown us a, a part where Saul, the anointed king, had to confess his own fear of man to the prophet Samuel. Saul says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, I have sinned for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because why? Well, I'm just going to be honest about it. I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. No, wait a second. You're a mighty king. You've been anointed, you're handpicked. The reason why you were handpicked is because people would look to you because you stood taller than them, you were more handsome than them, you had all the human characteristics of a leader and you were afraid of them, so you did what they wanted. The Bible would say that is a fear of man, even an illogical fear. John comments as he gives us his gospel account of all of Jesus' works, and the effect that it was having with the gospel being given and people responding. He says in John 12, he says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus. We don't hear that much, do we? We think of in the gospel accounts, the authorities are just rejecting him, chasing him down, challenging him, criticizing him. But the reason why we don't hear about it much is because of what John says. Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So what does that say about them? It says they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So as we come into our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to see that Paul is going to continue to pound the truth that any earthly qualifications that the Corinthian church wanted him to boast about, to even put on display, had no real meaning to the work that God was doing. This passage of scripture is going to address these two needs. Our, our first passage this week is only going to address the need for acceptance. And then as we get through the rest of chapter three, we're going to see how Paul addresses the need for purpose. But by standing up to their demand for worldly credentials, he is proving that the approval of man was no, of no consequence to Paul. He didn't care about it that much. But here's the difference. Instead of it being our mainer kind of personality, right? Stick me in the woods, leave me alone. I don't care what people think. Paul doesn't just have that puffed up attitude about, oh, I don't care what your opinion is. You don't define me. He didn't have an attitude about it. Instead, he demonstrates extreme care for the mission and the people of God, as opposed to just not caring what anyone thinks. You hear the difference with what culture is calling us to do? Stop caring so much about the opinions of others. 
It's all about, you know, putting out your own image and all these kinds of things. Stand up to the naysayers, be bold in their face. But it's this, it's this dampening down, this desire to just, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think. There's something missing in the instruction. It's starting down the right path, but it's resulting in a deadly end. So how is it that Paul rises above the common desire to freak out about what everyone thinks of him? How is it that Paul resists this desire to be validated by the Corinthian believers? How does he get there? Well, by way of review, let's just go over the few verses that Pastor Ben covered for us a couple weeks ago. Beginning in, in verse one of chapter three, and let, let me just say for a moment, cause I've got a minute or two to do this. Let me just say, I would encourage you guys, if you're not in the habit of doing it, to start bringing your Bible with you. And it's not so that we can, I remember, uh, like, you know, it seemed like when I was growing up in church, there'd be people that would just come to church on Sunday like this. Neighbors would see, I'm going to church. I mean, I couldn't find a bigger Bible, but that isn't for that purpose. But here's where I'm going with this. What the helpful part about carrying your Bible, and it's we put the scriptures up on the screen so that as people come in, maybe you're new to this, you don't have a Bible yet or something, we don't want you to be left behind on that. But the point about bringing your own Bible is that you have an opportunity to mark it up. You have a tendency, uh, you have an opportunity to um, string together the, the message from last week to this one. We're trying to um, increase the culture, if you will, of Bible application here at Faith. It's really what we're going after. And one of the starting points for that would be to be able to mark down the things that you're being challenged with and to read some of the, sometimes if the preacher's boring, you could read the comment notes below, get some real education, that kind of thing. We also have included notes in the bulletin. Many of you have seen that, but we have a two-sided um, set of notes this morning for you to follow along with. So please take these tools um, and use them to your advantage. I encourage you to do that. Going back to Pastor Ben's message a couple weeks ago in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, we see that Paul is starting to address this thing about, so what do you really want me to do about this whole credentials thing? He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves, this is where he gets personal, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul is saying, I poured my life into you as well as many other churches and congregations. What you guys bring to the table, the lives that are changing in your midst are far more powerful than any piece of paper. Why would I resort to that kind of thing? You're my walking resume. Verse three. And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not even on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So they request something physical. They request essentially a paper resume. Paul brilliantly uses their requests as a metaphor to show them that the work of Christ was written on their hearts. And that is all that should be required. So moving forward into verse four, he says this, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. And now he's going to answer a question that he asked of himself in his own writing at the end of chapter two in verse 16 where he said, who's sufficient for this stuff? 
He's laying out all this work of the kingdom and he's showing that God is in charge of all of these things. And he's trying to show that we apostles, every time Paul is saying we, he's talking about he as a current apostle and the apostles before him. He says, we are not sufficient to pull this whole thing off. We, even if you wanted to see my resume, I don't have the resume that could have accomplished all of this is what Paul is saying. Who's sufficient for this stuff? So in verse five, he answers, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So let me rephrase what Paul might be saying in this verse here. Don't waste your time on self-confidence. Paul would admit I've been down that road before. I walked into this game carrying all kinds of self-confidence and it yielded me nothing. Instantly, we should hear a very counter-cultural message in this. This is what makes the gospel unique from everything else. And that's what troubles me when the world, that is the system of belief out there outside of the will of God, that the world would think that Jesus is just something we can add to our life. That he's just a part of the thing that we're missing. I can still be hopped up on my career. I can still try to have my A game together. But the one piece I'm missing is a little God. So let me bring this in over here. That at every point the gospel is introduced into somebody's life is completely radical. And it is transformative. And it leaves the old system in its wake. So here's Paul saying, don't waste your time on self-confidence. And there's 300 people in this room right now hearing a message every single day when you're not in this room or where your face isn't in the word of God or where you're not fellowshipping with a brother and sister in Christ who keeps having people beat the message into just believe in yourself, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. Paul's saying, please don't waste your time with that. It gets you nowhere. We've seen several instances already in Paul's recording of the things that he's gone to that the battle that underlines this whole pursuit of self-confidence, the battle is between pride and humility. He says the only confidence that we have is through Christ. Some of you know Paul's resume. Some of you know, and he's going to get into it later in the letter, but he's going to get into it really. I mean, reluctant is probably the weakest word I could come up, come up with. He actually has this demeanor about him. I cannot believe I have to tell you what, how, how smart I am. I can't, I can't believe you're making me tell you my qualifications. I can't believe you're making me go down this road. Don't you know I gave that guy up? But because they were demanding it, And their pride was all whipped up in it. He said, I'm going to address it, but I'm going to tell you how vain and empty it is. He says, the only confidence that we have is through Christ. Pride has an illustrious track record. Pride is really the the oldest sin. It's, it's the thing, if you know the account of how Lucifer, how we refer to him now as Satan, uh, fell out of graces with God, was kicked out of heaven because he said, and this is what pride says, I want to sit on his throne. I'm tired of him getting all the credit. I'm pretty cool. I mean, you don't, you, you don't have the effect on the world that we see now that Satan has without him having a lot of skill, quality, beauty, all that kind of stuff. No one, no one should ever think that Satan was just some schlep that didn't know what was going on. And so Lucifer, wanting to ascend, engages in pride and says, I, I want his seat. I want his throne. I want his authority. I, I want to change things. 
Isn't it so common for us? We, we usually work for somebody, right? The most common, and please don't, this, I guess I'm getting pretty practical here. I don't see this in my notes anywhere, so let's trust this is of the Spirit. Maybe it isn't. If not, chuck it. It is the most common thing in the workplace to say, my boss is such an idiot. I could do his job so much better than him. It's the most common thing. Understand how that sounds when you understand the battle that's going on in the heavenlies. We always think we could do things better than the next person. Lucifer falls into this trap, says, I want to be like God. I want to ascend to be like the most high. So we have pride introduced to the rest of the world in its oldest form. Stott says this. He says, pride is more than the the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Why is that? Ultimately, it's because it contends with God's throne. Rather than just being a setback, we have a tendency to humanize our sin and be like, oh, it's a setback. I had a prideful day yesterday. I didn't get anywhere. I offended my wife or I, something like that. But it's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's more spiritual than that. It's more um, critical than just a setback. This is a contention with God's throne. C.J. Mahaney, in a tiny, adorable little book on humility, which I think is appropriate for the subject, um, it's simply called Humility, True Greatness. I left it in the notes on the back page if you are so interested to look for it, like on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Isn't that the way the advertisement is supposed to say? A quick little read. You get through it in an evening. He says this. He says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. So what is my pride saying? I don't need him. I got this. And that subtly supplies the fuel for this fear of man that, that I know, Lord, you've called me to bigger things. I know that you've called me to be more stable in something else, but you don't understand what I need from my world. What I need from my world is for this person over here to validate me. What I need from my, for, from my world is I need to, to feel my phone vibrate or ding every time somebody likes or comments my photo or something like that. I need this for me. So Lord, you need to kind of stand to the side of control of my life. I've got this figured out. I know what's best for me. You see the connection? You're seeing the link here? But fortunately for us, because of who God is and his character, he's too compassionate. He's too jealous to let this linger. And you go, well, jealous is a bit of an offensive word. I don't want to think of God as being jealous. Jealous seems petty. But the holiness of God means that he is above everything else. If God wasn't jealous for his own glory, he would be guilty of idolatry. He would, even if he wanted to share the stage as equal partners with you and I, he'd be guilty of idolatry, therefore diminishing his holiness. So he has to, by his own character and nature, be jealous for his own glory. So because he's compassionate towards us and he's jealous for his own holiness, he doesn't let this linger. And he's got some very harsh terms for this idea of pride. Proverbs 8 tells us, he subtly says, I hate pride and arrogance. There's no getting around that. Proverbs 16, he continues, he says, everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured He will not go unpunished. James 4, quoting some of these passages, says, God opposes 
the proud. So while the world is telling us become more self-confident, build yourself up, be happy with the you that you see in your mirror, you don't need to submit to anyone's authority, you answer to you, understand who they're setting you up against. That the Lord of the heavenlies and the God of, of, of all of creation, of every universe, of everything, that God says, I oppose you if you walk in pride. John Calvin, way back in the day, said it like this. He says, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, pat on the back, obscure his glory. And I love this last little line, as far as they can. I mean, we can't really obscure the great glory of the, all, uh, of the Almighty One. But as far as we can, we seek to. He's not going to allow that. All right, Brent. So what I gather from this is you're saying, because I can't be self-confident, because I can't trust in my own resources and things, so all of the knowledge that I may have acquired over my years, maybe the talents that I was born with, um, perhaps my experiences and those sorts of things, I'm just supposed to chuck them now. Is that what you're saying Paul did? That he said, all right, I used to be really good at these things, but I can't do them anymore. Is that what Paul, that's, is that what Paul's getting at? We are not called to deny the things that we have developed. We are not called to deny the things that perhaps we've been gifted or born with. We are called to devalue them. I don't know about you. I do one little thing and I think I own the world. I visit some of you in the hospital and I walk out and I want to get myself a teddy bear at the gift shop. That was good today. I noticed somebody was dying. Wow, look at me. This is, this is what we do in our flesh, in our human tendency. We have a tendency to over-evaluate the tiniest little good that we bring to existence. I'm annoyed. I'm so annoyed. I, I love sports. And I'm not going to boycott them, you know, unless something drastic happens. But it's just a stage for arrogance, isn't it? You've got guys that are, I, I follow the, the silly little drama sometimes. And you follow what these guys are making in contracts. And if you follow it enough, you actually start feeling bad that one guy only got paid $18 million last year instead of his teammate that got paid 28. You're like, poor guy. It's terrible. But here's what happens on the field or on the court or something like that. So uh, imagine, so this is just an, an expression of our humanity. So he has already been acknowledged for his talents and his skills. Or she, got to keep it real here in 2019, already been acknowledged for what they bring to the court or to the field through uh, a paycheck, a contract, teammates, congratulations, all that kind of stuff. So you're hired to do a job. You make that one catch, right? That someone just paid you about $30 million to make and you still want to do this to the crowd. Celebrate me more. I need more. I need more. I know I just did what I was paid to do. Like if I had dropped that, you'd been like, we're paying you 30 million, you bum. I did what you called me to do and now I want more celebration. This is, that's a microcosm, but that's, this is who we are. We do the thing that God has equipped us to do, to do our place in this earth. And we want so much congratulations that no amount of reward is satisfying enough. Our hearts 
open, are, are open and open and open to more of ourselves if we're not careful. But the Bible says that God opposes the proud. We're not supposed to deny that we have certain gifts, talents, and things that we can do to, to, to do our work well or to play our sports well or to serve in the kingdom well. We're just supposed to devalue them. They don't add up to much. I'm not supposed to find my identity in those things. Paul gives us the answer. This is, this is where Paul's victory over his pride came through. You'll recall that we said back in Acts that, that Paul's story was he was on the road to Damascus, still actively engaged in crushing the church, still actively engaged in interrogating Christians and in some cases executing them. Jesus intercepts his travels and he knocks them clear on his rear end, strikes them with blindness. For days, Paul's doing this because Jesus says, I got to break you. You are moving at such a fast degree in your own Paulness or Saulness at the time that I have to break you of this because I have bigger and better plans for you. But in order to get there, I got to undo all of this. Imagine the instant humility that comes with Paul starting to stumble around going, okay, not only is he right in speaking truth, but he is powerful. Paul's thinking, I was educated, I was accomplished, I'm driven, I've got full, I'm I'm zealous, I'm promoted, I'm all of those things. But this guy speaks and knocks me flat on my backside. And for days, I'm contemplating how powerful he is. So when Paul says our sufficiency is from God, that is a loaded statement. Paul's victory over his own pride came through being broken. Mahaney, the author of the tiny little book on humility, says that humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. If I take the time and I carefully look at how holy, perfect, and pure God is, and I go, well, I, I play basketball well, or I take really good pictures for Instagram, or I do... You know, or even I'm a CEO of a massive corporation, but all it takes is one bad stock day and that whole thing's stripped away from me and God is still great, holy, powerful, and unchanging. When we honestly evaluate how mighty, powerful, pure, and holy he is compared to our sinfulness, there isn't a comparison. You start to get over yourself the more you see his resume as opposed to your own. Paul had already told us in chapter one, when they were feeling the crushing weight of all of the trials and circumstances, he says that we had felt that we had received the sentence of death. We were at wit's end, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I'm looking back at this and I'm going, that's what he meant by this. Yes, God raises the dead. We all read this. We're like, yeah, that's what he does. That's why we believe in him. But Paul's saying, I couldn't do that in my, on my best day with 10 of my resumes. Jesus could do it like this. He can blind me. He can raise the dead like this. We rely on him. We're going to see in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, we, we're going to have a guest with us in August. Uh, Chris Nanakin, Dr. Chris. Many of you will know who he is. Um, great Indian accent. Um, after he's had a seminar he's doing with Ravi Zacharias, 
So in order to not be outdone, I told Chris what passage I wanted him to preach. And he said, yes, sir. Chris is the most humble, gracious guy. He is amazing. But I asked him if he would consider staying in flow with what we're studying, because as we looked at where we would be at the time he came, we're like, okay, Chris will knock this thing out of the park. So Dr. Nanakin will be with us in August, and he'll be talking about this verse that we're about to read. In chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, in clay pots, fragile clay pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When we facetiously say, why would God use us to do his mission? It's only to point out how strong and reliable he is and how fragile and weak we are. Paul's pride was systematically dismantled by a purposeful, compassionate, jealous God. There's no way around it. You see, Paul was, we say this often, we say that guy is the smartest guy in any room he ever walks into. Paul's resume now included, I am the most broken man in any room I ever walk into. I have been dismantled. Saul is gone. Paul is now a servant of Christ. Isaiah 66 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Don't you desire that? Don't you want to be smaller in life? I don't know about you, but I I see people. I'm around people that just seem to be naturally, I don't know, diminutive in spirit or contrite in spirit. And I, and I, it's probably sinful, I guess, but I just want to emulate it. I desire it. I feel like I'm the loudest guy in every room I'm in. And some of these folks are just happy to observe. They're happy to encourage, happy to thank the Lord for each and every day. It becomes a goal. It becomes something to emulate. God has historically used the unqualified from the prophets to the apostles to people in our modern generation now. It's the unqualified who the Lord uses the most. You know, we've said an expression generation after generation And you're going to say it for me that God helps those who help themselves. We're going to put a twist on this. We're going to edit that statement with one word. So every time somebody says, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You don't have to go. Well, that's not true. Just change it. God helps those who humble themselves. This is the key to the whole shebang here. If we humble ourselves, if we reduce us, God says, now I got something to work with. I've been waiting for this moment. So let's wrap this up. Here's our sequence of events. Here's our stages that we go through and sum this all up. We all crave acceptance. That isn't because we're sinful. It's because of the way that God made us. But we pursue our acceptance through human approval, which is fickle, which is selfish, which is failing. Pride leads us towards self-sufficiency. This very impotent, very lacking in any strength or power, desire to be cooler about us, to be bigger in our own shoes. Pride contends for God's throne, and he's a jealous God. He won't allow it, so God rejects the proud. He hates pride and arrogance, he says. And God's sufficient people, like Paul is saying, all of our sufficiency is found through Christ. God's sufficient people welcome 
not with a smile, don't get me wrong, but allow him and welcome him to dismantle me. Lord, I know I stand in your way. I know every day I wake up looking to get in your way and say, I got things to do today. Get me out of the way. Let me follow your lead. Dismantle me. Humble people reject their own sufficiency. You know, often we would say that person over there, he's blessed with confidence. Or we might say, you know what? I'm not the right person. I'm plagued with self-doubt. Again, gospel flips these things around. Maybe we would be plagued with confidence because it's the thing that thwarts what God wants to do. Maybe we would be blessed with self-doubt because when we doubt ourselves, we find the one whom we can have confidence in. So what are some of the things that we can do with this? There's some uh, elements that you can chase down this week in a way and kind of like homework ways in the notes, in the digging deeper section. There's some things to see, some verses to know and, and things to study. But ultimately, what we're called to do is to not fear the approval or the rejection of other people. It does not have the power over us that we often give it. And it's not because we're cooler than that. It's because that's not the person that we were made to find it from. We were made to find it from our Lord and Savior. How do we do this practically? We start to study God's resume and we take ours and kind of crumple it up and throw it in the trash can. Where is God's resume? It's right here. Every preacher seems to wrap up every message with read more, pray more. But understand the purpose in that. If this is his resume and I say, I want to know what he's been up to. I want to encounter the power that he's displayed so that I'm, I'm confirmed and con content to get rid of my own power, to not rely on it. Take the next step in your walk with God because he is sufficient to give you the words, to give you the actions, to give you the faith needed to complete the task. Trust his track record. You know, so many people are on the verge. They saw the announcement on the screen and they're like, okay, last day for baptism call. I keep saying I want to do it. But then my response is, but I just couldn't do that. I couldn't. That's a great place to be. That's the whole point of this. No, you can't. If you say, I can't wait to get up there. I'm so excited to share my or whatever. There's one thing that comes from a place of exuberance and joy, but some people are just blowhards. They just can't wait to be heard. I got so much to say. You know, we've seen that a lot through the years and we've seen that fizzle out. We've seen that person fall off the tracks very shortly after baptism. Don't hold back because of some lack of self-confidence. That's a good place to be. It's encouraging to the rest of us, isn't it? Next week, we're going to see, Lord willing, how we find confidence by engaging in useful, purposeful mission. Once I get me out of the way and figure out who he is and what he calls me to do, all of a sudden, so many other things in my life start to get it getting answered because I'm wrapped up in him and his call in my life more than what my own self-perceived needs are. So that's where we're going for the rest of chapter three. I'm going to ask you to stand and join me in, in prayer and we'll close our time together. God, we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for a, a morning of celebration for all the things you're doing, not just a morning of, of comfort and entertainment, but to, to really see real mission taking place. Thank you for hearing the praises of your people this morning. Thank you, Lord, for challenging us in your word. I pray, God, that your spirit would continue to speak these uh, truths and scriptures in our ears throughout the week. God, may we be people that are motivated to get ourselves out of the equation and to allow your resume to be our lead. 
So we thank you, God, for all that you do in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.